You're listening to the audio program, Host and Guest, hosted by me, Rick Katchke. Now here's myself, Rick Katchke. Yes, welcome to this edition of Host and Guest. I'm your host, Rick Katchke, and on today's show, I am joined by Oscar Harding, the director of the new movie, A Life on the Farm. Now, I've been following the production of A Life on the Farm for several years now, as this movie was championed and produced by the Found Footage Festival, and I actually got to see it last year at the Milwaukee Film Festival. Since then, the film has been distributed and toured the country at various Alamo draft houses and is now available on demand. So without giving too much away, A Life on the Farm is a documentary about this feature-length home video, which was shot by a farmer named Charles Carson, and the combination of the aesthetics of the tape the aspects of farm life covered in the tape, and Charles Carson's unique sensibilities. So in our discussion, we talked about the origins of the tape, uh, how this documentary came to be, and what it's been like to have this play all across the world. So here it is, my chat with a Life on the Farm director, Oscar Harding. Well, here we are with Oscar Harding, the director of A Life on the Farm. Oscar, thank you so much for joining Host and Guest. Thanks for having me. Glad to be part of the uh, almost decade-long comeback. <laughs> yes, I mean, honestly, been... like props to you. Most people like have this idea and life gets in the way they just completely abandon it. This has clearly been something you've been desperate to get back uh, and, and rolling, I guess. Well, it's funny because Joe Pickett of the Found Footage Festival, I saw him last December. And he was like, why aren't you doing the podcast anymore? We really enjoyed when we were on the podcast and you should do it again. So I, I took that little piece of encouragement from Joe and was like, you know what? Joe's right. I should get back to the podcast. He is very, very good at encouraging people to do things either they don't want to do or they really should do. Kind of goes either way. <laughs> so A Life on the Farm. Uh, I saw this documentary last year at the Milwaukee Film Festival. Uh, incredible documentary how did it come to be like what what was the origin of the tape in your family sure so yeah my grandfather passed away 2006 and we're going down to his house to clear out his possessions and uh, one of my aunts finds this videotape they had this vague recollection of old oh, dad showed us this you know crazy tape his neighbor had made and then she digitized it we got like halfway through when I'm a kid I'm like 10 at the time and dad all of a sudden switches off the tape. So it kind of lived rent-free in my head for years. And we moved house and we lost a copy of the DVD. And just, you don't really give it a second thought. And I, obsessive is the wrong word because, like, I, it wasn't keeping me awake at night. But just once in a while, I would get this flash of, man, do you remember that tape you showed me? I'd love to see the rest of it. And we could never find it. And then Dom, one of my two producers on this film, this is 2018 at this point. Um, he and his uh, partner and uh, his, you know, his partner's parents, they go down to this B&B in the West Country, which for people who don't know, we refer to the southwest of England, that weird kind of like almost boot shaped part of it as the West Country. So that's Devon and Cornwall and Somerset, a little bit of the city of Bristol. So I think straw dogs and hot fuzz, that kind of area. Sure. Just in case we need to like, give a bit of context. So he goes down there and he tells me, you know, you wouldn't believe the weekend I had. 
and he didn't think he was going to get out of this place alive. There was this kooky old guy running the B&B. It's like Deliverance, but with funnier accents. And then he told me that, and it's like, it's funny you mention that. Have I ever told you about this tape? So then we start talking. I talk to my aunt, and just by chance, she's like, why didn't you tell me this years ago? I still have my copy of the tape. So, yeah, I get it, sit down and rewatch it, and the rest is history. So there's clips that play throughout the documentary. How long is the tape in and of itself? Yeah, so this initial tape is about an hour and 40 minutes, so it is feature length. And then I don't want to give too much away, but we found uh, some additional footage a couple of years into production. So they say never to read reviews of your film, but it's your first film and, you know, you just kind of get that itch. And, you know, even like, you know, some of the bad reviews and some of the good reviews have said, I want to see less of this documentary, more of this guy's film. And I completely agree. The problem is, we spent three, four years looking, and this is all we could find, two hours of footage. And I tell this story at every q and it always gets the same reaction. Charlie Norman, Charles's cousin, the subject of our film, we interviewed him as we're packing up. He said, it's a shame you didn't come here a few years ago. So we said, what do you mean? Well, I moved house and I had 200 of Charles's tapes and I didn't think anyone would ever want them and I needed to clear out space, so I threw them all away. So he was the custodian and the archivist of all of Charles's work, threw it away. And what is in this film, there's very little of it that we left on the cutting room floor. This might be all that exists of his work. And I'm praying that's not the case. And I'm praying that when we start playing uh, theaters in the UK in the fall, um, someone's going to see this and they happen to have some extra tapes because it's going to be devastating if this is all there is. Like 200 tapes. He was making movies for over a decade and what we have in the film is just the tip of the iceberg and i'll be devastated if that's all that remains so this could be like hopefully those tapes are unearthed and this could be like a lifelong project for you just constantly uncovering yeah. a life on the farm tape just i mean i i love his work so much just i, I am genuinely uh, and unabashedly a fan of his work so putting aside a, a sequel and i don't think there's any call for it honestly I just want to see more of his work. And at one point we found out that he was even like a, an aspiring DJ and he made mixtapes. And we spent like six months trying to track down this one mixtape this guy thought he had in a shed, but the lock had rusted. And keep in mind, this is the middle of nowhere. So I'd be calling him up on Skype because he didn't have WhatsApp and there wasn't an internet connection. And I would call him up and go, hiya, have you found that tape? Oh yeah, I haven't got around to it. And it would just be like that for months. And eventually just it went nowhere. But even if that tape doesn't exist, there's mixtapes as well as <laughs> videotapes, as well as photography. So it's like we were researching this before the pandemic. We were trying to do it during the pandemic as well, as well as like trying to make this film. And I'm just praying that like we've missed a trick and there's a ton more stuff out there. So how did actually getting to the, the step of, of making this a documentary how did that come to be so as soon as we uh re-watched this footage and i found my aunt's dvd of it i i had this production company with these two partners i met in college and we were going to do narrative like we all have docs but i don't know i can't speak for the other two i never thought i had the skill set that you need to tell that particular kind of story i was always interested in narrative but we looked at each other and went we have to do something with this i don't know what but we cannot just sit on this footage. And we didn't have a whole lot of, a lot of context at this time. So first thing we wanted to do is, well, look, 
let's find out who the hell this guy is. I didn't know anything. My family didn't really know him apart from he's your late granddad's neighbor. That's all I knew. So we start embarking on this thing. And it's a short at this point, right? And then spring of 2019, we shot a little bit of stuff. I get this opportunity to move with my now wife to America. She's American and start this job. And I just said, look, I'll come back. Summer 2020, we'll finish this thing off. Well, we all know what happened there. But in the interim, before we even knew what COVID was, uh, it's the fall of 2019. And I'm just, you know, sat here twiddling my thumbs and I can't shoot this thing. And I really want to, you know, get in front of a camera or get behind the camera and start doing something with it. So then I find out that in the States, you've got like a subculture of found footage and people find this stuff like Life on the Farm and they show it to an audience. So we don't have that in the UK. And it just so happened that two out of these three big found footage entities were going to be in Milwaukee with their show. So first up was Everything is Terrible and they're great. And we, they were actually here for the film festival, funnily enough. So, you know, I go and interview them on Halloween, Halloween 2019. And then a couple weeks later, the found footage festivals in town. And I reach out to them and I send them a link and they say, oh, yeah, sure. Come along. So Joe claims I snuck in and broke into the back room. <laughs> He's full of shit. Uh, so they invite me along just before the show is starting. And of course, <laughs> they hadn't watched it. So I'm like, shit, I've got a camera crew. Their show starts in 15 minutes. I'm just going to try and skip through the highlights. And they just became absolutely obsessed to the point where Joe is like having a screaming match with his brother in London, arguing about like the contents of the tape. And then Joe and Nick were the ones to keep like reaching out to me. It's like, can we play some of this on VCR party? Okay, we're going to play this on VCR party. But it's, uh, and I, I'm like, please don't show one or two clips. You know what I'm talking about. I don't want to give it away. So it became like what turned out was this panic thing of, oh my God, they're showing this stuff, but we've even finished the film. Turned into, hey, we'd like to invest in it. And it was still a short at this point. And then as we found out more about Charles's life and we discovered this footage, we all looked at each other and went, I guess this is a feature. Because that's a really difficult decision to make. One, it's your debut feature. If this ain't good, you're screwed. But then also the amount of documentaries I've seen that I love, but I've just gone, it's way too long. This would have been a great mid-length. This would have been a great short. And they've just dragged it out. We were really hesitant to turn this into a feature. But more of Charles's life story kept coming out. There was no way that it wasn't going to be a feature. I mean, we've got it at like 75 minutes, which is pretty tight. And that's whittled down from a four-hour cut. So I think we just about got away with it as like a really short feature. Now, you're so essential to the story. Was it difficult at all for you to be like, I have to be in this feature film. I need to be on camera to help explain and transition this. We really all wanted to avoid that. Like we were doing everything we could to stop me getting in front of camera because I don't want to take away from who this film is ultimately about. And, you know, sure, I'm the starting point technically through my family and discovering the tape, but there's a way that, like, I don't have to get involved. And the discovery of this isn't really important. It's everything that I discovered. But the problem was everyone who we would interview for the film and who contributed, and even if they didn't want to be on camera, would, like, share stories with us. The problem was nobody knew the complete story, not even his cousin, 
his cousin was unaware of stuff that we found out from different chapters in Charles's life. The problem was there was no voice that could hold all this together. And we all just looked at each other and went, shit, all right, this is the only decision that makes sense. So every time in the edit, we would try and find every possible second of me that we could cut out. So I'm just this really minimal presence. Like, you know, again, there's some great documentaries I've seen where the filmmaker inserts themselves and sometimes it works as sometimes it's just seems like a practice and ego and it gets in the way. And I was so paranoid of doing that. But again, I, I hope we got away with it and I'm in it as little as possible, but you need that glue to hold it together. Yeah. There are so many documentaries where it's like, like you said, it's like an ego trip. It's like, why are you, why are we seeing you? Yours is very tastefully done and it's, it's necessary to the story. So well, I wanted very to kind. compliment you. It is a good documentary to have you on camera for. Just honestly, everything with this has felt like, I guess we got away with it somehow. It's not as though, yes, this is a bold creative decision and everyone will love this. It's like, I guess we just about got away with it being a feature. We just about get away with the director being in it. Honestly, I'm not trying to be humble. I'm genuinely shocked at the caliber of festivals we got into, the caliber of distributor we picked up. It just feels like dumb luck, and I'm worried we're not going to have that for the next one. <laughs> so you mentioned, you know, the Found Footage Festival, everything is terrible. So there's both uh, found footage presenters as well as found footage connoisseurs that are in the documentary. How validating was it for you to have that confirmation of like, yeah, this, this tape is wild. I mean, yeah, look, I think it says something to this footage that is so hyper-regional and old with references that even people my age in the UK wouldn't get now. And I'm showing it to these Americans in New York and Hollywood and Chicago and Milwaukee, and they're getting it and they absolutely love it. And again, that that isn't me. That is testament to the guy whose film we're making a documentary about. I knew we had something, but I wasn't sure how well it would travel. Honestly, outside of Somerset, the, the county this primarily takes place in. But again, like we have, we've now played 52 festivals in 26 countries on seven continents. And that wouldn't have happened if they didn't love the, the work and the subject of this documentary. It's testament to him. You mentioned seven continents. How did that, there was a screening in Antarctica. How yes, did that come to be? That was a lot of patience and false starts and some really lovely people <laughs> who kept emailing me saying, I'm really sorry, we're trying not to freeze to death. They weren't passive aggressive, I'm, I'm, I'm phrasing it wrong. But, you know, they were just saying, hey, we've got to, you know, do all this stuff to stay alive and vital scientific research. I promise we'll get around to doing your film. So you can't really push them on. Yeah, can you push aside this stuff that could help revert climate change to watch my film but then i just get this email out of the blue after sort of six months of silence and they said the team was rotating out we showed this thing and they've now kept it on their server so the next crew can come in it's kind of like the thing but instead of a shape-shifting alien it's a somerset farmer <laughs> so if you go to antarctica to a one research station it's still there for you to watch which i just love i'm so happy that happened that's something for all those that are researchers that listen to the podcast, something for them to look forward to. There you go. There you go. And I, we wouldn't do this strategy for the next film because 
it is exhausting trying to keep up this international festival run. I mean, I can't say what the festival is, but I think it's the last festival we have confirmed is in October. So this thing has been playing all around the world for like 18 months. We only did it because the more we found out about Charles, the more it became clear he wanted an audience and he was distributing this work himself the best way he knew how. So it's just, it's testament to him. And we just wanted to do this for him that as many people as possible are gonna see your work. I wouldn't do this on the next project. I would just stick to like the conventional way of distribution. Do you have any highlights from your, your time touring with the film? Yeah, so uh, I've been in the middle of getting my green card, which I've now got, but I, I got invited to all these international festivals. Some even offered to pay my flight. And it's like, I legally can't leave the States. So I had to miss out on all these different things. One of my partners lives in Australia, so he had to miss a bunch. And the other one is in the UK and Brexit makes things harder. And, you know, we're all working full-time day jobs. So, yeah, we missed a few, but I, I've been to Seattle. I've been to Birmingham, Alabama. Obviously, I've been to LA now. I've been to New York and Chicago with it. Highlights, it's just, honestly, if one person shows up to watch this, it, it means the world. And I know it's easy to say that because you're not going to say it sucks if one person shows up and I don't have a sold out screening. But honestly, I've had people come up to me in, in tears and like they've got it. And my big worry with this is, are people going to think we're making fun of him? Are they not going to get the point and think that this is cruel? And basically everyone who's seen it has fallen in love with this guy in the same way we did. Like you'd have to be a certain kind of psychopath to spend years of your life and other people's money and giving up all kinds of things to make a film just to make fun of someone. You know, like we, we genuinely love this guy's work, which is why, you know, we put everything that we did into it. So it's available now digitally. Uh, DVD release in the States is coming out this summer. Do you have uh, special features in the works for the DVD? We do indeed. There's some really fun stuff. Um, I may as well just spoil it now. No one's really going to pay attention. But um, if anyone knows the, the cult B-movie filmmaker, David Rock Nelson, we interviewed him for the film and he was brilliant, but it, just, it didn't make the final cut because just it didn't quite work. But he gave the most incredible interviews. So we have this amazing deleted compilation, basically, that's on there. So it hits DVD and Blu-ray and VHS on July 18th. We are currently available to buy and rent on every major VOD platform in the US and Canada, Australia, New Zealand are coming soon. We just picked up distribution in the UK and Ireland, so that'll be on the way in the fall. So plenty of ways to see it now. And it's nice to just have it out there and not have to tell people to keep waiting. So this has been a project in the works for years. Do you already have inklings of what your next project might be? Yeah, so we have been working on a short doc this time about a guy in Milwaukee, funnily enough. I can't really give away too much right now, but uh, you know we've been shooting that for the past year. It's probably going to take another year before it's out, probably two years. This is kind of the last doc I would like to make unless another amazing story comes by because just it's one thing trying to you know spend years making a narrative film, but then that all comes together very quickly and then you shoot and you edit and then you're done. But with the doc, it's like, it's a part of you for years. Um, a Life on the Farm has been a five-year journey. And I love it. I'm very proud of it. But I'm really excited to just move on to the next thing and tell the next story. 
again, we weren't planning to do another doc, but then this guy's story came into our lap. And again, we just thought we'd be stupid not to go and tell this amazing story. I'm really excited. And this one, he's only 50 minutes drive from where I live. So it's a lot more convenient. Uh, and it's nice to tell a distinctly Milwaukee story, as opposed to trying to tell this really personal story about where I grew up in England. Um, I wasn't actually on set for about three quarters of production in the UK because there was the pandemic. And then once the pandemic started to like, you know, flatten out a little bit, there was still the travel ban. And then when the travel ban was lifted, I was in the middle of getting my green card. So it's going to be nice to tell a story on set. Um, I really hated the way we had to make the film where I'm shooting some of it here and I don't have my DP and I don't have my AD all my producers, like my close partners. And they had to go and do the same thing, but without the director whose kind of vision is driving this thing. And then I didn't even get to um, be on set for everything in America. Like we were kind of shooting in New York and LA, you know, in between lockdowns in the US and it just wasn't safe for me to travel and we didn't have the budget. So I'm kind of directing people over FaceTime with time differences and bad internet connections. And again, somehow we got away with it like it's testament to my crew my composer my editor that it, it looks as good as it yeah does. i would have no idea that it was so patchwork in the production <laughs> yeah like it, it is the epitome of a pandemic film but you wouldn't know it and like we found some great you know subcontractors uh one of the main people from um paul t goldman directed a bunch of stuff out in la for us which is a great doc series i'd highly recommend it as a documentary filmmaker, do you have a favorite documentary or some favorite documentaries? Yeah, so one of my favorite docs is American Movie. Um, and I loved it before I even moved to Milwaukee. And you just run into Mark Borchard all the time. Um, everyone who's a filmmaker, there's three docs that they should watch. Um, Lost in La Mancha and He Dreams of Giants. I don't know if you've seen either. I've seen Lost in La Mancha. I, I don't know of the yeah. He Dreams and Yeah, I, I know it really went under the radar, but they made a follow-up, which is showing him finally getting to make, uh, it, Terry Gilliam finally getting to make The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Um, and it's a great companion piece. Like, I just watched it this weekend because he's one of my heroes. I was following the production for decades, you know, from a little kid to an adult now. And it's immensely satisfying that it's out and there's a follow-up doc. So they should watch those two and then American Movie. Uh, anything else coming up that uh, you want to talk about or promote? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, we have some projects in development and there's this doc coming out. But um, I mean, honestly, right now it's still, you know, Tunnel Vision Life on the Farm. We just want to you know, get the UK tour going. We finally get to bring it back to the village where Charles is from. That I'm really excited about. Um, yeah, nothing to promote apart from a life on the farm. And, you know, it's out to buy and rent. Please tell everyone about it if you like it. Thank you to Oscar Harding for joining the show. Oscar is one of those guys where we have mutual friends who have each told us, you two should meet. I, I think you would get along. So no better way to have our first ever conversation than to have it recorded for posterity and for your enjoyment. As mentioned, A Life on the Farm is available on VOD now. And if you're a physical media guy like me, that release is coming next month. A Life on the Farm, well worth your time and your money. 
Plus, you get to see and hear more of this episode's guest, Oscar Harding. So if you haven't seen the movie, but you liked this episode of Host and Guest, I can project that you'd probably like A Life on the Farm. Thanks again to Oscar for joining me, and thank you to you for listening to this edition of Host and Guest. <laughs>